Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. I've just had the pleasure of speaking with Mary Louise Roberts about her new book, What Soldiers Do, Sex and the American GI in World War II France. Now, we're coming up in a little over a year on the 70th anniversary of the D-Day landings of 1944, military operations that were key to the liberation of France and the eventual end of the Second World War. Using a variety of sources, what soldiers do shows us that the invasion and occupation of France by U.S. troops was also a story of contact between American men and French women, and this was a story that included romance, prostitution, and rape. The book is really exceptional in the ways that it broadens our understanding of this mythic historical period, and I think that there are a number of different readers who will find its account illuminating. One of the really distinctive things about the book is that it takes a transnational approach using both French and American sources, paying attention to the experiences and perspectives of GIs as well as the French citizens they encountered. The book looks at what sexual encounters meant, but it also looks at the ways that sex stood metaphorically for political and economic issues. So narratives of romance could mask the more brutal side of war. Prostitution could symbolize national or cultural values, and rape could be a metaphor for understanding military invasion and occupation. I think the book will also be a fascinating read for anyone who's interested in the history of sexuality and the connections between sex and war. And the ways the book explores these connections makes it especially topical as, you know, cases of sexual assault in the military and sexual assault committed by combatants in various parts of the world have been garnering more and more attention in the media and in the international community in recent years. I got a chance to ask Lou Roberts about the contemporary relevance of her book towards the end of our interview. Throughout the discussion, she explains some of her choices as a researcher and a writer and expands on her analysis in ways that certainly deepen my own understanding of the book. I very much enjoyed reading What Soldiers Do and this chance to speak with its author. And I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Hi, Lou. Are you there? I am. Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. No problem. I'm always happy to speak with you, Roxanne. Well, I really enjoyed reading the book, and, and I'm really excited to have the chance to talk with you about it and about how you got the idea for writing it and some of those things. Um, and I have a number of questions that, that I hope we'll have time to cover. I'm, not, I'm sure we won't have time to cover all of them. Uh, but I wonder if you could get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about, a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France and French history in the first place. Sure. Um, well, right now I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, but I grew up in Massachusetts on the East Coast. Uh, and I got interested in France because uh, my mother went to a French Catholic school, and she had four daughters. I was one of four. And she wanted us all to go to a French Catholic school that she went to, which was uh, the Convent of the Sacred Heart or the Couvent de Sacré-Cœur. So this meant that when I was in second grade, I was learning French. Uh, and I also learned a lot about French culture, even though I didn't know it was French at the time. I didn't realize how French the school was until the first time I went to France. And I'll just give one example. Uh, when I was in France, I realized everybody in school was underlining everything. And I realized, oh, God, I did all that underlining, you know, your name underline, the date underline, the title underline. Um, so I always had a real love of French and French things, and the French language is in my head more than all the other languages I've learned. <laughs> and then also in high school, I had a French a native French speaker who was a teacher, Jacqueline Roland. And she was such a wonderful teacher, I dedicated my first book to her. So um, I have always had wonderful experiences uh, with French teachers and the French generally. Wow. And that's it. Yeah. So that's, uh, and, and becoming a historian of France, that was just a natural... Uh... Yeah, anything to get me to Paris. <laughs> Uh, well, and the other thing was that was funny is that Joan Scott, who's a very famous uh, French historian, was actually a parent of one of my students. I taught high school for four years. So I met her on parents' night. <laughs> and wow. then, 
she became my mentor, and I found her work so inspirational that drew me back to graduate school. So I guess that would be the final piece. As usual, great teachers, right, Roxanne? That's right. No, and I, I and I, uh, I know of whom you speak. So um, that's a that's a great. Uh, point of entry. So can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the subject of this book in particular? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I think the book started, um, I always have wanted to do something on the Second World War, but the literature was so intimidating um, that I waited until after I got tenure at Stanford to do (laughs) Um, And then I moved into this house that was built in uh, January 1933 for a Jewish couple. And it was just such a coincidence. I decided I would write my second World War book in this this house. Um, And then uh, I went to a I have a wonderful colleague at Wisconsin, Mary Leon, who works on images of uh, the Japanese in Stars and Strike, the military newspaper during the Second World War. And uh, I heard her talk and I thought, gee, that's really interesting. I wonder what the images of the French were in Stars and Stripes. So I ordered that up. It was a very uh, widely circulated, very widely read military newspaper during the war in all theaters, the European theater as well as the Pacific theater. Um, and um, it moved around. It's, it's wonderful. It started somewhere in England, then it was in North Africa, and then it was somewhere in France, and finally it was in Paris and then Berlin. So I ordered up the part of, you know, summer 1944, and it was a fantastically interesting source anyways. But what struck me uh, in reading it was the amount of uh, propaganda that had to do with with sex, you know, how they had really (laughs) sold the whole French venture as an opportunity to meet French women and to maybe uh, have sex with French women. And I thought... Well, now that is about as interesting as you can get, you know, the how, a whole set of propaganda about this. And that's kind of what launched me into the book. I tried to figure out why this tack, you know, why did the U.S. military, because Stars and Stripes was, you know, written and, and produced by the U.S. military, why they would be so um, obsessed with sex as a way to sell the European theater operation. It's so interesting. And, you know, um, when I got my first job, I the first thing I bought for my office uh, on the street somewhere in New York City, I think, was a, a, a copy of Stars and Stripes. And I oh, show it so. to my students every every year. And uh, I thought about it really differently. This image, of course, on the cover is an image of a tank operator or somebody, um, you know, being embraced by these, these French women. And I, I hadn't really thought about it. And I've thought about it in such different ways after reading your book. So... Um, I really appreciate the chance to kind of revisit that that, that <laughs> image in a, in a new way, and 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 we'll get to that talking about photography and the role that it plays in the book. Um, so, in the introduction to the book, Lou, you make the important point that this isn't just a history of sex or sexual representations, but it's also a book that's about political authority and sovereignty. And of course, the book makes this argument in a number of different ways throughout. But I wonder if you could say a few words more generally about this idea of the political meanings and consequences of ideas about sex in the context of France at the end of World War II. Sure. Um, I guess I have two points to make about that. The first is, like all um, scholars, I've been very influenced by the French philosopher Michel Foucault. And I think what Michel Foucault made us all realize is that uh, sex is about power. And um, uh, that decisions about sexuality and who has sex with who has a kind of politics, which really for people in my field, not just French history, but gender history, um, was really important in terms of looking at sex and sexual relations. It's not something that just boys do, but it's something where there's a really um, complex uh, web of power relations. Uh, So that's sort of the deep background on this book is my engagement with Foucault's um, ideas about about sex as a form of power, as a form to uh, as a form to exercise power, and as a form to resist power. And then the second uh, thing about that uh, is that I think it's particularly important in the French case. Um, one of the cartoons I have on the door outside my 
office is this uh, New Yorker cartoon of a little boy and his father looking at this nude. And the father is saying to the son, don't worry, son. She's not naked. She's French. <laughs> um, and I think that, that, that for the United States uh, and for Americans, you know, it's a sexy country. France is in particular, I think, associated with sex. And I'm not quite sure where that came from. Um, I think it might have had something to do with Sarah Bernhardt, who toured this country, you know, and who was such a sex symbol. I think it has something to do with the First World War. Um, That's definitely where the myth came. My guess is that the fathers of all the GIs, you know, sat around when they got home and talked about those sexy French women. Um, So I'm not quite sure where that myth comes from, but it's there and it's very tenacious. So... um, So no better country than France to have um, sex be about politics. Right. Um, And it's and it's really fascinating the way you trace that throughout the book in these three sections, you know, one that starts with romance. And I think, oh, of course. Right. Paris is the honeymoon capital of the world. Right. It's to this (laughs) day. Um, One section on romance and then another section on prostitution and then a third one on on rape. Um, so if we sort of talk about this issue of romance and maybe kind of move through the sections of the book and the chapters in a little bit more detail. So one of the points you make early on is that the story of World War II and the Normandy campaign uh, needs to be understood as an encounter between two allies as well as with the enemy. And so this includes examining how the campaign was seen through French eyes. So can you tell us a bit about uh, the contribution the book makes to the history of the war in, in these terms? Sure. So one of the things I tried to do in the book was to counter the American narrative, which is focused so exclusively on the American GI. Um, And that is all across the board, from uh, popular histories of Stephen Ambrose to um, movies by Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan, in which there's hardly any French people at all. Uh, You know, it it seems like a deserted country. Um, So I tried to put the French back in the picture. Uh, The the two images that Ambrose has in his books is the French as sort of childlike celebrants of liberation or uh, sullen collaborators. Uh, There's literally not a positive image of the French Mm -hmm. in those books. So I tried to show Uh, first of all, that uh, the Normans were experiencing extreme hardship that summer. Uh, It was hardly a a joyous occasion for them. Many uh, lost their families and many more lost their homes. Uh, And then I also tried to show the um, real richness and variety of the ways in which uh, the French, uh, not just the French resistance, but French civilians helped the GIs by giving them directions, hiding them, uh, showing them shortcuts in the in the in the woods. Sometimes entire villages work together to um, hide GIs and get them back to the American lines to um, tend to the wounded, to tend to the dead. Uh, so that was one whole um, aspect I really felt strongly uh, should be in uh, the American picture is the much more positive view of the French civilian. And then I also tried to. Uh, bring the French in in terms of uh, uh, relations with the Americans developing that summer. Uh, So it wasn't just a battle between enemies, uh, but uh, also, you know, a new kind of relationship between allies. And um, so what I did for that was I used the imagery of a tourist to the GIs were Mm -hmm. here as a tourist. Um, And um, I had a lot of fun with that because the GIs, if you read their memoirs, they really have some of the same responses to France that Americans do today, like, uh, what's a B-Day? And (laughs) um, why is the first floor you know, called the second, no, why is the second floor called the first? Right, right. All that stuff that, that confuses us. And then real language problems, which of course ended up in really funny situations. So, uh, so that's the other thing I tried to do was to show how the war was an opportunity for a lot of guys to have a cultural experience that was very, very different than what they had been used to. 
It's really fascinating. You talk about the ways that GIs were soldiers, liberators, and tourists, and you also make, I think, the important point that that GIs were liberators and destroyers at the same time. Could you could you say a little bit more about how that works? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean. That was the sort of central paradox of the war for Americans was that they they had to destroy um, whether or not they had to is actually uh, a, a disputed point. But um, they did a huge amount of bombing before they um, would come into villages. Uh, and uh, the, by this time in the war, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, was basically prostrate. So they had complete control over the uh the skies and so they would go in and bomb villages before <clears throat> the infantry would get there so as a result and, and and some of the towns and the destructions were extremely famous saint low of course is one and the off um i think 80 percent destroyed uh so this was really hard for the french because on the one hand they were liberated but on the other hand at the price of everything that they owned I think you make this, it, it's quite, it was quite, uh, when I was reading it, I was really struck by this point that you make that, you know, the French didn't know, you know, how this was all going to turn out. So whether the liberation was actually going to come following all of this and that this fed into uh, anxieties and, and even resentment of some of the destruction that, that took place in this period. Yeah, and many times villages changed hands. So, you know, if the Americans complained that the French were unfriendly, the the French were actually just being, you know, savvy because if they saddled up to the Americans and then the Germans took over uh, the village again, then they were really afraid of repercussions. So um, some of that was just caution. You know, it's true that the the battle was far from won really until uh, the breakout at St. Lo, which was late July, early August. So, um, yeah, we, we tend to forget that things hung in the balance there for quite some time. Sure, in hindsight, the mythology of this moment really uh, looks different than, than the way it did on the ground at the time. You, you also, in the book, well, throughout the book, but especially in this, in this first part, make the, the really interesting point that uh, liberation was a, was a sensory experience, that it had a smell, a sound, a taste. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that and the kinds of sources that you use to get at that sensory side of this history. Well, I really wanted to present um, Normandy as an embodied experience. Uh, And I remember this started out actually talking to the archivist at St. Lo, who told me that he had sources that would make D-Day come alive as an embodied experience. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's awesome. You know? Yeah. So it was a really fun way to organize the narrative, you know, that they heard the war before they saw it. And they became really smart about um, how they could, you know, what kinds of bombs were headed towards them, what bombs would not head towards them, where the front was. They could find out by how how uh, the noises they heard, the sound of artillery. And then there's a whole part about uh, the first glimpse of an American, you know, like the first time they saw an American and what, what that was like for them, what the, you know, and of course they thought all the Americans were huge, just <laughs> huge. They were all like giants. Um, and they were really impressed with the boots. That was another sound yeah, right. because their boots were rubber healed. And so they were very, very quiet uh, compared to the clickety clack of Nazi boots. Um, and then so much of the the first moments of liberation revolved around notions of taste uh, and smell, uh, the smell of cigarettes, uh, that honey uh, blonde tobacco, which the GIs mm-hmm. Hot. And then also um, the taste of chewing gum and the taste of chocolate. That was uh, another really strong association. When people talked about D-Day and liberation, they were, oh, I remember my first Hershey bar. Um, so it was a really fun way to make the whole experience come alive again. It was great. Yeah, I think you do a really wonderful job of giving that that you know mythological moment that we all know something of the history of, more or less, but to give it that kind of texture and richness and that sense of experience from different perspectives. So to, so to come now to the, 
sort of where you're heading with this in, in, in this first part of the book, this, these ideas about romance and sexuality. So what, what role did sex and ideas about sexual promiscuity play in that encounter between these allies, the American soldiers and the French? Well, I, I think that um, the Americans, first of all, um, had these associations with France and sex that I talked about a few moments ago. But on top of that, and I think that's probably what gave the U.S. military um, the idea that they could sell the war through sex. Um, so what I found in Stars and Stripes is uh, a consistent set of images photographic imagery in which GRs are being embraced or kissed by French women. Uh, And there was a whole relationship between the GIs and children, but that tended to get uh, sidelined in Stars and Stripes. And I think it came uh, to a climax, uh, sorry about the imagery there, (laughs) in the liberation of Paris, which uh, Stars and Stripes sold as just as, you know, a sort of erotic party um, where everyone was going to get laid because they had liberated right. French. Um, so um, this is how they sold the war, because remember, uh, I think the GIs in the Pacific had a real reason to fight, which was the Japanese had bombed American soil and had, you know, attacked American soil. Europe, not so much. You know, they didn't really have um, these long-standing angry uh, thoughts about the Germans. And in fact, many of them saw the Germans as a sort of comrade in arms. Uh, you know, the German, there are many Germans, obviously, German-Americans. So um, it was really hard to sell the European theater. Uh, they didn't really care about the French, I don't think. Um, and uh, they're far away from home. So this became the way to sell the war. Um, what happened, and this leads me into the second and third parts, and this is really the, the narrative arc of the book, is that having sold uh, the war as an opportunity to have sex with women, they then underestimated just how popular that narrative would be among the GIs, most of whom were right randy men in their 20s. So before they knew it, they were having a prostitution problem that was out of control. They were having venereal disease rates that were skyrocketing, and they had a rape issue as well. So um, in some ways, the first part of the book sort of sets up the U.S. military as, as creating this justification for the war, and then the second... And third parts of the book show this kind of backfiring for them. Yeah, um, and, and and I think the way that you set that up in that first part is is, is really fascinating, especially with this um, discussion that you have about the way that photography played a role um, in producing this kind of ubiquitous image of the manly GI and this mythology of the GI. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the the kind of political meanings of this image and 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 how it was connected to the ways that the American mission in France uh, was characterized in terms of, you know, you refer to as a a heterosexual romance. Like, what was the political effect of that um, set of images? Yeah, okay. So I think one of the reasons why the United States wanted to do this was, besides motivating the GIs, is that in a way they wanted to use sex um, to domesticate the whole invasion of France. I mean, when you think about what American-French relations were, they were really at a low point. Neither Churchill nor FDR really respected Charles de Gaulle. Mm-hmm. Uh, they basically snubbed him any, any, at any moment. Uh, de Gaulle landed in France and took over Bayeux uh, of his own accord. Uh, they in no way recognized de Gaulle's uh, legitimacy as a French leader, and it really was wasn't until October of 1944, which is, you know, by my clock, five months after the invasion, that they actually recognized the sovereignty of the French government. Mm. Um, There had been some historians who said that the Americans were um, bent on creating a French, you know, an American government in France. And there's this plan called AMGOT, which is basically what they did in Italy. And I actually didn't see evidence of that at all. Um, on the ground documents that I saw, there was a lot of respect between civil affairs, which was the sort of um, G6 section of the army, which was going to deal with civilians and reconstruct the society in the wake of liberation. I didn't see that 
actual plan to take over France, but there was definitely a, it was an open question for several months. So what the other thing, which uh, all those wonderful pictures of GIs kissing women on tanks and getting embraced by French women did, was it sort of domesticated um, or even naturalized um, the takeover of France by interpreting it in heterosexual terms, you know? So this is not about the United States taking over France. This is about some guys having fun with some girls and getting some action. Um, So the politics there was really a politics of of camouflage, you know, or or using the sort of natural um, natural um, nature of heterosexual relations to create a natural sense of the Americans taking over France and, and occupying it. So that was the sort of rhetoric of the propaganda and the kind of political framing of the of the mission at the higher levels and, and in terms of the press and those kinds of things like Stars and Stripes and some of those publications what did the what were the responses of the american uh well the soldiers you talk about but also the american public and the french men and women who were also sort of part of the audience for some of these images well um the the cover picture that i have is a picture that appeared in life magazine in september of 1944 and when it appeared in life magazine um it created a kind of stir in the united states um because there were a lot of women who had guys over in france and husbands and boyfriends um and some intrepid iowa reporter went out and interviewed women what do you think about all these guys in france having you know having a kiss from french women and there was a big article in Life magazine in which these women, uh, all of whom are pictured, um, you know, complain about this. But what's interesting about that picture to me was that these were all working women. They all had, you know, there was only one woman that was pictured in that Life magazine article that had a baby. Um, and it made me realize that, in fact, uh, the, the kiss, the French kiss, as I called it, had a completely different meaning when it entered the American media, which was, it was... Um, in some ways uh, about uh, sexual transgression on the part of the men. And it also probably, of course, this article in Life then was reprinted in Stars and Stripes. And when it was reprinted in Stars and Stripes, my guess is it reassured the GIs that despite you know, all those working women getting great wartime salaries, they missed their men and they didn't want <laughs> The, uh, they didn't want them to be unfaithful. So in some ways, it it, it, it had a completely different um, meaning when it hit America media. And for French men and women, what did they think of these images? French men especially, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I have a whole chapter on French men, um, and I'm not sure that they looked at those pictures in uh, Stars and Stripes, but they definitely didn't like the idea of American soldiers kissing French women. Um, Remember that really a huge amount of French men are in Germany during the war Um, and or they're in North Africa or they're, you know, fighting with the free French or whatever. So I think the really hard time for French men was immediately after the war uh, when they come back uh, from German prisons or from the army or whatever. And they see GIs in their towns and all the women in their towns are just fawning over the GIs and are not that interested in them. Um, And I I did a lot of work with French novels and Mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot, you know, written by men or French memoirs written by men. I also read a lot of autobiographies of Estelle prisoners, uh, labor camp prisoners in Germany who came back. And I developed this notion called gender damage, Mm -hmm. uh, which was that French men really were suffering from gender damage anyways, because they had lost the war, they had failed to protect their children, their families, their wives. Uh, and then on top of that, the ultimate insult is they see first Germans and then Americans taking over their women. Um, so the French male response was really, um, it was a difficult situation for them. And you talk a lot about, in the book, you, you address certainly this issue of how American GIs saw 
French women um, and French culture as, as, as hypersexual. What did what was the sort of uh, field of characterizations and images of French men that uh, GIs had, and that the American public maybe had a sense of? Well, there was a not. There's a pretty negative <clears throat> view of men in general. <clears throat> On the one hand, um, yeah, the GIs were. were um, were really aware that they were trying to liberate France because it had been defeated by the Germans. And there were a lot of GIs that felt like the French had failed to do their job so that they were now over there, you know, with their buddies losing their lives away from their girlfriends to do the job that the French should have done. So that was one thing. So there was a lack of respect. Um, and on top of that, uh, there was a tendency to see, and again, I think this is an image of Frenchmen that uh, is much older than the war. I'm not quite sure what its origins is, uh, but um, an image of the Frenchman is effeminate. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of um, cartoons and stars and stripes about what bad drivers French men were, which I think is always a feminizing um, characteristic, uh, that French men couldn't deal with machinery, uh, they couldn't put trains together, for example, um, and that they were seen as sort of hysterical. Uh, I saw that again and again in the visual imagery, and some of it is in the book, so you can actually see it uh, in the book. Um, The only men that the GIs respected were um, members of the resistance. And I think that the north of France and the south of France was really different this way Mm -hmm. because uh, the way in which the invasion, uh, the American invasion from the very south, you know, moving north um, in the summer of 1944, the French resistance was really strong in Marseille, Lyon, all these places where uh, the the GIs battled northward. Um, And so there was an incredible amount of cooperation between the Americans and the GIs uh, in that that um, that operation in the north as well. I think the you know that the GIs saw the members of the resistance as the last men standing um, because they really were fighting for their homes and. Uh, there was a lot of conflict between GIs and resistance members over tactics. And it totally made sense to me because the, the, the GIs had artillery, they had, you know, training, they had equipment, uh, they had supplies. Uh, so they fought in a different way than, say, the Maquis or the resistance would, which was much more guerrilla fighting with a gun if they had one. Um, so when they fought together, there was always a conflict over tactics. But I think those two groups of men really did respect each other. That's the it's only really, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say the only way in which the resistance lost the respect of the GIs was the um, the um, the shaving of women's heads at the end of the war, uh, the way that, you know, the, the, the taunt and the tendu, um, the way they took women who had collaborated with the Germans, usually mm-hmm. horizontal collaboration, and shaved their heads. The GIs found that to be a really unchivalric, uh, to say the least. Right. Um, and the GIs tried to intervene in those, and they lost respect for those men, too. So it was it was very, it's a complicated question. Sorry to take so long. No, no, no. We're interested in your answers to the to, to these questions and i i think you do an, an amazing job of in the book of showing this kind of complex blend of you know anger envy resentment pride anxiety yeah. all of these different types of feelings that french men had about the presence of gis and what they were doing in france but also about the ways in which uh french women you know the roles that french women and and ideas about french sexuality played in in all this you you mentioned a, a couple of moments ago you know, that into the second part and, and the third parts of the book, you talk about um, prostitution and rape. So so maybe we can talk a little bit about that now. Sure. Um, you know, the sure. second part of the book begins with this exploration of the contrast between the realities um, and the and the images of, of American wealth and French deprivation, you know, remembering that this period at the end of the war and then even immediately following the war is one of, of scarcity and, and, uh, and, and, uh, that French people were were confronted with um, American have it all really that the Americans right. had had a lot as you say the Amerilots and the Harlots. So yeah. I wonder if you could talk about that idea of the Amerilot. 
Yeah. Um, I did a whole chapter in the book on commodities because the GIs were so well known for certain commodities, American cigarettes, absolutely. And then chocolate, chewing gum, um, and Coke. This is when Coke becomes Mm -hmm. an international drink. Um, So you could actually write a whole history of the war around, you know, the Marlboro Man and and Coca-Cola. And what was interesting to me about commodities um, is, first of all, they become nationalized for the first time. You know, you begin to understand Americans in terms of commodities. So national identity becomes a matter of commodities. And I think that, that, that the war is not the only time that happens, but I think it's a pivotal moment in that process of increasingly understanding a nation in terms of its commodities. Um, but it also, that you're right, the contrast between American wealth and French uh, scarcity, in, particularly in that first really hard winter of 44-45, um, really articulated power relations between the, the Americans and the French. In other words, the Americans had the power and the French did not. Um, there are many things that you could get in an American PX or store, but the one thing you couldn't, there are a couple of things you couldn't get. One was alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, Calvados, but then also wine. Um, and then fresh things, you know, eggs and cheese. So there was very early on a black market that developed in Normandy between um, farmers who traded cheese and eggs and also um, calvados for, among other things, gasoline for their tractors so that they could uh, harvest their crops that year. That was, of course, completely illegal. Um, Mm -hmm. And then other thing that you could not buy in the PX, and it was the American, uh, sorry, the French commodity par excellence was prostitute. Right. Um, so prostitutes actually become just another figure in this black market. There, there's very little distinction between made, I think, in the American mind between uh, a bottle of wine, a bottle of Calvados, fresh eggs, cheese, all these other commodities, and sex. Right. Um, and that was also um, a commodity and uh, which was uh, very um, important in terms of articulating power relations between the Americans and the French, where obviously the Americans have a lot of power and a lot of money, and the French, in particular French women who are sometimes forced into prostitution to make ends meet. So that sexual relationship there is really about power and articulates power relations between the Americans and the French. Well, much of the the book focuses on Normandy and um, the landings and the that kind of first these first moments of contact. You do explore in the book uh, the special role that Paris plays in all of this, and I think at some point you say that you know the war gave Paris meaning and Paris made the war bearable. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how Paris became you know the, the expression is the the silver foxhole and and. and <laughs> How did how did Paris come to, to be seen as the silver foxhole, and how did France come to be seen as you know one big brothel for for <laughs> That was actually Hitler's expression uh, that, that that Paris was a big brothel. Well, first of all, I should explain what a foxhole is, Roxanne, because not everyone knows that. <laughs> That's right. Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So the foxhole was literally every GI had a little shovel, and uh, a foxhole was the hole that they dug to sleep in at night when they were out on the front. So. So the silver foxhole was Paris because it was just the place to be. And this goes back to the whole touristy thing, you know, like these kids came from, you know, Abilene, Kansas. I mean, you know, in the middle of nowhere, small towns. So Paris was just like the biggest, most fantastic place that they had ever visited. Um, So that was the big thing was to get leave and go on Paris Uh, and some some you know people actually got leave and went there, and some people just got there on their own somehow. A lot of people went AWOL to go to Paris. Um, and, of course, again, you know, it was fun to do entertainment. There wasn't very much art to see because it was all taken down. Right. But the big thing was to go have sex, you know. Right. So the question um, I brought to to the whole Paris thing, the Paris leave thing, where, by the way, two out of three GIs contracted VD. If you were going to contract VD, that was the place to do it, um, was, you know, how did this sexual culture adapt uh, 
to, you know, literally 10,000 men were on leave um, pretty much all the time. And that was that's just a conservative a number of the amount of GIs that were in Paris. So how did they, you know, create this culture where they could get a lot of sex very quickly? Um, and it was really amazing that they were able they were quick studies, those GIs. You know, they, they basically took the whole sexual culture that France had already and um, changed it in such a way that they could make it very American. So among the things that, that actually went down the tubes was the whole uh, system of maison de tolerance. You know, the, the GIs had absolutely no tolerance for having to go to certain uh, houses with women that were under medical supervision. So it really changed prostitution in France because you had a lot of so-called illegal uh, streetwalkers. I often think this is such a funny metaphor. The first time I went to France and I got into a taxi line, that was the first experience I ever had with, you know, a kind of civilized, systematic way of doing things. Um, You know, whereas if you go to New York, it's all about the dog-eat-dog world of getting out on the street and waving down taxis (laughs) and getting in there before somebody else does that's just the American way of doing things, you know, sort of chaotic and um, and uncivilized. And it was pretty much the same way about sex, you know, the whole very discreet system of sexual um, relations that they had, prostitution and these these sort of, you know, maison closed, the, the shutters were closed. That just went to hell during the war, you know. The phrase I used was a tsunami of lust. That's um, right. <laughs> so it actually changed uh, the whole um, system of prostitution decisively in France. Um, so, yeah, just to, to back up a second. So was prostitution legal in this France in France at this time? You know, and how how was the state involved once, you know, we're dealing with the situation of the war and the liberation? How did the state what role did the state, French state play in the in, in in the management of prostitution? And, you know, how did all of this work? Where did GIs go then for sex? And how did they manage their transactions? And when and how, <laughs> if they did, did they get caught? Well, the state tried to revive the whole legal system of prostitution, which had been in place since the 19th century. Okay. Um, the Germans had kept that system. Uh, and one of my favorite documents ever was a municipal council meeting in La Havre where they're trying to figure out how they can reconstruct the whole system. Uh, among other things, some of the maisons were bombed and destroyed. Uh, and they were sitting around figuring out how they were going to reconstruct the system. And they had to admit to each other that the Germans had run it much better than they had ever done. You know, that was just really sour and solid, you know. Um, so in part, it was very hard to revive after the war because of, you know, physical damage to cities. Um, but also because of lack of personnel. You know, the French government is just getting on its feet at this point. So um, so it, the legal system operated really, really badly. Um, and that's another reason why, you know, the GIs just were able to blow it. So increasingly what happened was you had prostitutes who were on their own, um, mostly in Paris, but also in um, large towns for GIs. So and also Le Havre, um, and, you know, any place where the GIs were stationed became huge um, towns for prostitution. And it was mostly illegal. You know, I'm mm. sure it was like 70, 80 percent streetwalkers. Uh, you know, the Lou de Memoir of the GI was the cheap hotel room for sex, uh, not the maison. So, um, so uh, the system adapted to this sort of anarchic tsunami of lust um, by just creating all kinds of sources, illegal sources of prostitution external to the legal system, which did not operate well. At what point um, in the book you examined this sort of fascinating story of a brothel that was actually set up in France uh, by the U.S. military? And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this blue and gray corral and other so-called like, GI, to quote, um, you know, GI whorehouses. I was really struck by these stories that you, that you uh, and the sources that you had. Yeah, when I went to the National Archives, the archivist said, you have to go through the files of the adjutant general because he's the guy who comes in when there's a big problem. And sure enough, that was a goldmine because there was this whole report of this 
um, whorehouse, essentially, that had been set up by a General Gerhardt, who was under Omar Bradley, uh, fighting in Brittany. Uh, this is August, September of 1944. And um, the... They basically, Gerhardt decided he wanted his boys to have sex, and so he sent out his chief of staff to talk to civil affairs, which was the liaison with the local population, and they found three willing prostitutes and basically a pimp who was willing to run the house. They requisitioned a house from a nice woman who had no idea what the house was going to be used for. Um Gerhardt said in the trial that he actually had done this to keep the sex safe. But uh, in fact, the uh, three women were only registered, only medically examined the morning of, and they were not in any way cleared uh, in terms of their health record before the the the, the prostitute, the, the whorehouse stopped. Uh, GIs were brought from the base uh, via military jeep to the place. So they, they not only provided the house, but the transportation. And they called it the Gray and Blue Corral. I actually have a picture of the uh, of the sign, which was taken by um, the the chaplain of, of the division, who was, of course, obviously appalled by the whole thing. Uh, the It was the 36th um the 36th division, which I believe is called the Gray and Blue Corral, because in the Civil War, um, members, you know, right after the Civil War, members of both the South and the North fought in it. So that was what they called it. it was a, It was basically calling attention to the unity of, of the division. Um, the whorehouse lasted only one day. Uh, this, this, unfortunately, I think it was like 71 clients in five hours for three women. Wow. So. Um, and what happened was the chaplain basically got in touch with Omar Bradley. He's a very famous general in the war and, and Bradley shut it down. So, um, and then Gerhardt tried again. He was completely unrepentant, uh, and, uh, tried again later on in the fall. Uh, but it was more difficult at that time to actually successfully do it. So, and this is not the only one. I mean, I know that there were, um, whorehouses in Cherbourg about a month after the invasion. Um, what the United States military tried to do is not so much shut them down um, as to segregate them by race. So after the liberation of Paris, the, the Marshal Provost landed in Paris. The first thing he did was went around and designated which uh, brothels would be for officers, which brothels would be for African-American soldiers, and so on and so forth. It's really fascinating. You know, At one point you say that the that sexual regulation lay at the heart of what the war was all about. And this, just what you've just mentioned about segregation really says this, this idea of the struggle over people and territory, even marking the differences between um, a brothel that, you know, a, a white officer could go to and uh, a brothel for uh, African-American soldiers. Um, you know, you talk in the introduction to the book about how you wanted to write a book that was uh, both serious and fun. And, and we certainly talked a lot about the sort of funnier stories and that side. But, the, of course, the last part of the book is really focused on this issue of rape and um, the way that rape was racialized uh, in, in this period in the war. And, and so now I want to sort of ask you some questions about that. You know, how significant a problem or issue was rape, the rape of French women by American GIs? And, and, and what role did race and specifically racial profiling of, of black soldiers play in, in all of this? Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, in terms of the arc of the book, I wanted to draw the reader in um, and then, you know, tell them the hardest part of the story towards the end. And that is is definitely the rape part of the book. Um, there were two rape waves. You know, people think about the Germ Germans and the Russians as the rapists on the Eastern Front. But in fact, the Americans had two rape waves. One was in the summer of 1944 <clears throat> in, in Normandy. And then the other one was in April of 1945 in Germany. So um, I'm not going to give you a lot of statistics. They're all in the book. But essentially, there was a rape wave. There was what I actually call rape hysteria, uh, which meant that um, there were a lot of unfounded um, there were a lot of unfounded accusations of rape in France during uh, 1944. I think something like in August of 1944, something like 40% of rape accusations were founded to be untrue. Wow. 
so uh, <clears throat> so uh, so there is a way in which um, the French are really involved in this, as well as the U.S. military. Um, there has been um, there has been some literature on rape uh, in the European third. Theater. One is by Robert Lilly, who uh, is a sociologist, and then uh, Alice Kaplan wrote a wonderful book um, about um, a, a, a writer named Guillaume, who um, actually was the translator at some of the trials for American GIs uh, uh, for raping French women. And so he wrote, she wrote about some of these trials. So I didn't break the story. Um, <clears throat> I think what I tried to do was to... Um, poke holes in uh, the U.S. military's accusations, rape accusations against uh, American GIs, in particular their racialized character. Um, there were there was a, a, a an extreme disproportion of African American soldiers who were accused of rape um, in Normandy during the summer of 1944, and not only were there uh, asymmetries in the accusations, but there was also uh, out of proportional uh, figures of Ameri- African American GIs who were actually convicted of those charges and then actually executed. Mm-hmm. Uh, in France because of those charges. Uh, Something like 70 African-American soldiers were executed in the European theater. Uh, And their manner of execution was notable, which was that they were executed by rope. Uh, And in the land of the guillotine, um, it was hard to find a hangman. I actually found the um, dossier at the National Archives in Washington uh, about the hangman they brought in from Texas uh, to do the job. So what Lily and Kaplan have talked about is how this was um, the fault of a very racist U.S. military. And I do not disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I try to turn attention to, and this is really, I think, the advantage of a transnational focus in a world war, was to look at the French because the accusations were made by French women. Right. Um, so I tried to both understand um the approach of the U.S. military, and I, I actually was able to uh, get the transcripts of these trials and look at whether or not I thought uh, reasonable doubt had been established in uh, the case. And uh, I felt that in many cases, reasonable doubt should have won the day, and it did not. So I did a very thorough uh, analysis of the U.S. military judiciary system in France and why there were these accusations. But then I also looked at the French and what was going on for them uh, and why there there would be this kind of rape hysteria or these rape accusations. And so in, in the French case, was this connected to the colonial past and present at the time? And, and uh, was that, did that play a role in, in French attitudes towards African-American soldiers? Well, it's really complex. Um, but yes, I, it, what was interesting to me um, was that a lot of the prejudices French people had about African-Africans, they projected onto African-Americans uh, when they came first in the First World War, but then also in the Second World War. Um, so that was one thing. Um, but in particular, there was the whole um Colonial, and again, this is where sex and power are so intimately um, connected. In the colonial situation, of course, uh, the worst thing that a that an indigenous, let's just say, African man could do would be to have sex with a white woman. Right? That was considered what was called the Black Terror in the in the French colonial context. Um, so there was this all this this whole. Uh, already established this whole network of relations between uh, African men, white women, and white men, this sort of triangle. Um, and so what happened in the in the domestic case, in the metropolitan case, is uh, many French um, women and men saw the same sort of uh, thing happening uh, in the bocage, where you had African-American men t- supposedly taking advantage of white women. Um, But the really devastating reversal here was that the African-American man was not the indigenous colonized. In fact, he represented the American army, which was the conqueror 
slash imperialist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the humiliation of this um, was became in some ways uh, a way to articulate uh, the ways in which French felt national humiliation at the time because of the defeat, because of the destruction of their country, because of the German occupation, because of the American GIs um, flirting with and getting the attention of French women. All that uh, gets projected onto the African-American soldier and his supposed aggression against white women becomes a symbol of national humiliation. So that's how I tried to explain the rape hysteria in the Bocage in the summer of 1944. Were there children, Lou, that came out of this? Um, You know, that's something which I really did not find. It's so interesting. I know there were children that came out of the um, English um, situation, you know, the American occupation in England. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have not found any, and that's such a big issue in the literature for the First World War, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the Stefano Don Rousseau and um, but yeah I have not found much evidence of that I'd love it if somebody you know wrote me and said oh I know you know something <laughs> well maybe uh, that'll come out of this <laughs> yeah you have to remember too that um, you know the American army is on the move um, and um, while it is true that um, African Americans were more stationary, that's one of the reasons why I think um, they get accused of rape more often is that they are having more contact with the civilian population than the average infantryman who's basically fighting on the front. Um, but I think the only thing I can say is that um, there was much more interaction between African American soldiers and civilians in England. Um, and then there were some problems there, quote unquote. And um, so I think that the, the American uh, military really rigidly segregated the African-American population from the civilian population. I mean, I think that was just the ultimate taboo. And so my guess is that's why there were not as many babies born in France. But I really don't know. Um uh, it's totally fascinating. Um, I want to come back to something you said a few moments ago about you know doing transnational history because at the same time that I think the book is really uh, is really amazing in all sorts of ways for illuminating this this critical moment in in French and American and and, and really world history. Um, it's also for me as a historian also um, illuminating in terms of some of the insights that you have um, and the ways that the book serves as evidence of. You know, ways that we should be thinking about doing history and especially ways that we should be doing thinking about doing military history. And, you know, you talk about um, the importance of looking at war in, in transnational terms, but also the importance of, you know, thinking about sexual relations as more than, I think you say, a, a, an ahistorical sideshow of combat. And I just wonder if you could <laughs> say some general things about what you think about the, the, what the book, what researching and writing the book has taught you and where you think that kind of work needs to go. Well, what amazed me when I actually did start to read that literature on the Second World War is how repetitious it is. Um, (laughs) And I think, you know, let's just take the American case. Um, It's so written in a national frame that, um, you know, there's a there's a pressure to think about it as an heroic narrative. Um, And I can understand why uh, the war is uh, written for each country within a national frame, because the Second World War is along with the First World War, probably the peak of nationalism. Um, so, and, you know, governments required enormous amount from their, from their citizens uh, of their nations. But at the same time, all nations have their myths about the war. Um, so what I tried to do, and it was so much fun, was to work with archives from both France and the United States. So I worked in the national and local and departmental and even municipal archives in France, which was a delight. Um, all throughout northern France. And then I also worked in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. And what's cool about that is, uh, first, it puts the world back in world war, as Carol Gluck, an historian, says, uh, in that you're really looking at the interaction between groups rather than just one national group. But it also tells the lie of both national myths. You know, there are some things that I've 
have revealed about the American um, time in Normandy that nobody else has said. And I, I actually think I heard, you know, I was able to say some, some, you know, sort of bad news for the French too. You know, yeah. I think uh, the whole moment of national humiliation has really not been um, articulated enough in the French literature. So what, it, what doing that transnational piece allows you to do is to use archives against one another to get at a more complex level of truth about what happened. Um, it's, it's fair. It's really fascinating. And I, and I, I wonder too, uh, you know what? Whether you have thoughts about when you talk about this issue of also incorporating the history of sexual relations and the body and romance and some of these other ideas, you know what you think the significance of this book about the liberation of, of France uh, has and the end of World War II, how it contributes to our understanding of some more contemporary issues around uh, sexuality and war, rape and war, sexual assault mm-hmm. and war. Um, and if you have thoughts on the sort of significance, the contemporary relevance and significance of the work that you've done here. Great. Great question. Um, well, first of all, I mean, I really do think that what I try to show in the book is the way in which the U.S. military handled um, prostitution, which was basically to disregard and disrespect the French, uh, and the way they dealt with rape, which was to try and blame it on African Americans so that the American white army would um, look as if uh, it, it was a proper governing authority. Um, all those things, in fact, were the United States for the first time flexing its muscles as a global power. Um, and, and because people don't really look at sex and the way in which the U.S. military handled sex, uh, they don't really think through uh, how looking at sex can help you to understand uh, that ascent to global hegemony in a new way. So uh, one of the things I'm hoping people will start to do is to begin to think about sexual relations is really a way in which national powers are exercised and global hegemonies are, are um, exercised. Um, the other thing uh, is this report that came out in the military uh, last week about, um, you know, that there were like 18,000 sexual assaults in the military last year. Uh, and that was just not a surprise to me at all. Right. <laughs> and the reason is, is that, you know, the and of course, the person who the very person who was on this committee to prevent this was also, you know, accused of, of a criminal charge of sexual assault. Uh, the, the American army just doesn't take sex seriously. Uh, they don't really see it as an exercise of power. They really just don't see it that way. They see it. They're still naturalizing it as a male erotic need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're not completely thinking through the ways in which particularly uh, if someone in your chain of command, your superior is sexually harassing you, you have no recourse uh, to stop that sexual harassment, uh, that these are power issues uh, and they affect uh, the discipline and the authority and the reputation of uh, of the U.S. military. One of the things that happened with Gerhardt, uh, who was the guy who started his brothel in Brittany, was he typified this sort of two-talking way in which the U.S. military handles sex. Officially, prostitution was outlawed by the U.S. military. But the way in which the U.S. military handled uh, prostitution was basically to privately condone it. Uh, they basically, you know, they handed out condoms to soldiers going out and leave. So, so it was officially, you know, uh, forbidden, but then privately condoned. Well, that's what's exactly what's going on in the U.S. military today. It's officially condemned to sexually harass, but it's privately condoned. Uh, so that two-phase was all too familiar. Um, and I think as soon as, uh, you know, officials, uh, including Obama, begin to handle home this idea that sex is about power and articulates power relations, uh, then I think we'll have some reform. It's really interesting, and, it, and it's especially illuminating just the ways in which a book like this can uh, tell us a lot about this historical moment, but also uh, has something to say about the, some of the current political issues around sex and, and combat that, that, that are coming up in the news. Yeah, I wish it had changed, but I don't think it has. Well, Lou, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I'm wondering if I can ask you one last question, which is, what's next for you? What are you working on next? (laughs) Well, I'm actually completing um, 
a book of memoirs. Uh, I found so many amazing memoirs in Normandy of D-Day and of the invasion and the battle, the summer of 1944. Um, and some of them are published in French, but not in English. Uh, and then some of them are not even published. I found, uh, uh, you know, in 1994, places like uh, in places like St. Lo, there was a, a major oral history pro- uh, projects. And these are just wonderful, wonderful memoirs. And I'm having them translated. I've done some of the translation myself. And I'm writing a narrative of the war. Uh, and we are finally going to be able to see D-Day through French eyes uh, in English. So I'm really excited about that book. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not officially contracted with it, but it looks like I am contracted. So I, I won't say anything. But that will <laughs> be out uh, in 2014 for the 70th anniversary. It will be the first English language um, memoirs or uh, collection of memoirs from the French perspective, which I'm really excited about because I think more than anything, if you allow Normans uh, to speak about their experiences, we can change the narrow American view of what happened on D-Day. That's really fascinating. It sounds like a great project. I I, I look forward to reading it and perhaps interviewing about you about it when it comes out. Um, sure. I maybe even assigning it to my students. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be for teaching mostly, but also I think it will, it will reach a popular audience. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. Well, I really enjoyed reading the book, and I want to thank you so much for talking with me today about it. Oh, thank you. It was so much fun talking to you about this, and thank you for reading it so carefully. Your questions were fantastic. Well, thanks very much, Lou. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies. Thanks very much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time.